Sandy Hook, Uvalde, The Pulse Nightclub, Hurricane Katrina, COVID-19, 9-11. For millions of people in our country, these words are shorthand for unthinkable moments of trauma, and the effects linger. What can be said when a community is shaken to its core? And how can a Sunday morning sermon help a fractured community? In this episode of The Distillery, Kimberly Wagner explores these questions and more as we discuss her new book, Fractured Ground, Preaching in the Wake of Mass Trauma. Wagner is professor of preaching at Princeton Theological Seminary and an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Kim. Hey, it's so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. I have been enjoying reading your recent book, Fractured Ground, um, and I will share that rarely do I weep while reading, but uh, there are a couple stories in here that I had to read aloud to my family while I was going through your book. So first, thank you for writing something that is is um, so compelling and timely. Let's start with a story. So you share a lot of stories in the book, but I think this will help us frame kind of the why behind the book, I hope. So can you talk about, take us back to 1940 in Coventry, England? Yeah, no, it's such a powerful story. And it's actually one I encountered when I was in Coventry um, and got a chance to worship at the cathedral. Um, but the, the story starts, of course, um, November 14th, uh, November 14th, 1940, um, when over 500 German planes um, blitzed, right, the city of Coventry, England. Um, and it just destroyed the city, right? Destroyed mm-hmm. factories, businesses, hospitals, water lines, um, homes. And it was a blitz of almost 10 hours. It was one of the worst in the histories of the war and um, killed about, in this little town, killed fi- over 500 people, injured over 1,200, um, and, and just kind of went on all night. And one of the structures that was hit was the big cathedral there, St. Michael's Cathedral. And of course, um, it was completely destroyed and um, it was burning and there was nothing they could do because there were no functioning water lines, right? The water lines mm-hmm. had been destroyed. And those pictures of the cathedral, and it was really, it, it still stands to this day as a shell of a cathedral. And those pictures became kind of a, a symbol and a rallying cry for, you know, countries all over the world. Um, including the United States, there was a sense that this was like the representation of the destruction and the horror of the war. And um, But what's fascinating is how the community responded. Reverend Richard Thomas Howard was the provost of the cathedral at the time, and he immediately um, was really insistent that they would not seek revenge, but that this would become a symbol of, 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 of honesty about brokenness, but also of, of hope for peace into the future, right? Um, and that, that we, and reconciliation. And so what's fascinating is they, they get into the cathedral once the fires had kind of subsided and they went into this shell of a church and there's all these amazing photos, right? Of this church with the destruction, everything burned in the middle and these just shells of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the glass is gone, the glass had melted because of the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, And they began to kind of pick through the rubble and, you know, different, there's all kinds of stories around it, right? That a a fellow clergyman found three large nails and bound them together to make a cross, Mm. which uh, this cross of nails actually remains 
um, the symbol of Coventry Cathedral and as a symbol of kind of reconciliation um, that is at the heart of this community. Um, the stonemason in charge, you know, um, was standing at the bell tower with a reporter and they found two steel beams forming across and that became another kind of famous photo from it. Hmm. It's like but a haunt, like it, a, there's something haunting about those it's images. It's very haunting. It's very haunting. And what I find most incredible though about this story, well, two things. The first is that less than two months after the bombing um, and the fire, uh, Reverend Howard actually asked the stonemason, um, Jock Forbes, to build a new altar in front of where the old altar had stood. And he built it out of broken pieces of stone and even um, pieces of, of tombstones, slate from tombstones, um, and built this, this altar so that they could worship in this shell of a cathedral. Hmm. And then he also found, uh, Forbes found these two charred beams that were rescued from the ruins, and he constructed this 12-foot-tall cross. And that cross, you actually can still see it um, at Coventry. They now have have put up a new one and, and stored the old one so that you can see that preserved. Mm-hmm. But the idea is the community just sat there and worshipped around um, a rubble altar and a charred cross, mm-hmm. right? And, and what was a really powerful was that Provost Howard was really clear about the hurt, the pain, the suffering, but he also refused to let it turn into anger and revenge. And he kept preaching kind of the good news of that this ruined cathedral was a space in which God's love could still be proclaimed and felt. And this idea that um, that they needed to build a new cathedral. But one of the most fascinating things for me, and this is the other thing I love about the story, is they decided not to reconstruct the old cathedral. They actually built a new cathedral next door. And they're mm-hmm. now, the, to this day, connected by a brick walkway. Wow. And this new cathedral is really all about reconciliation and and kind of peace. And, and it, it's become kind of a centerpiece of that work. And um, it, in fact, I believe it's on Fridays if you go and visit. Um, you can go to worship in the cathedral on Friday, and then they do communion. But halfway through the service, you walk over into the old cathedral to have communion. Wow. Um, and it's just this really powerful symbol of new life in the midst of and accompanying death, yeah. right? And so for me and the way I think about trauma, this church is just so powerful as a just even architectural representation of what it means to coexist in this tension in this in-between space between life and death and destruction and hope. Um, and when I went to visit it, one of the things that struck me as I left um, was that, and, and it feels almost too poetic to be true, but it's very true, is that the cornerstone of the old original shell of the church actually has um, the, the scripture from um, uh, the scripture uh, from Haggai that says, um, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, and in this place I will give peace. And so wow. it's this just beautiful representation of this juxtaposition between hurt and hope, brokenness and and redemption, right? Um, yeah. And so for me, that that story sits as a kind of symbol for how we as faithful people and how we as preachers um, have to contend and think about uh, think about this work uh, amid trauma. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that community experienced something so traumatic together 
but the way that then architecture marks that part of their history and the liturgy bends to it rather than trying to erase it and just, you know, build something new and beautiful on top of it. Um, That strikes me as being so unique. And so of course that sets the stage for your book really is about um, communal trauma and pastoral response. So trauma is a word that, um, who it's become very commonplace. Um, you know, the trauma of having to do paperwork at the office or the, you know, <laughs> or the, you know, the trauma of family history or the, the trauma of a war, like you've mentioned. So let's, let's just say, frame what you mean when you use the word trauma in your book and maybe what you don't mean. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of my frustrations with this work in these days is that trauma has become such a commonplace word, right? We use it, um, you know, we use it to give kind of emphasis, right? Or to hyperbolically, like I ran out of coffee this morning. It was totally traumatic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it co- totally drains that word of its power and of its importance. But even when we use um, that word precisely and well, it is describing a response to a wide variety of events, right? Or situations, everything from mass violence to natural disasters to um, individual experiences of, of um, abuse or neglect, right? Mm-hmm. All the way to historical and cultural traumas, including uh, racism and white supremacy or LGBTQIA plus discrimination. Mm-hmm. And so at its best, this word still has a kind of broadness to it. Um, but that being said, I think it's important to understand trauma as um, as also separate from the traumatic event. Um, yeah. And so for me, this is the other place where I think we get mixed up with this word, is that oftentimes we equate trauma and the traumatic event. And I think it's really important to hold them apart because trauma is actually the subjective experience of an event, right? Yep. Event or experience. And so being subjective, it means that we can't pre-prescribe how people are going to respond to a given event, right? Or how communities are going to respond to a given event. And at the same time, we want to not fall into the trap of believing that just because an event has ended, that the trauma has ended. Yeah. So for an example, like an, ass- an assault would be the traumatic event. Correct. And trauma itself is the way that that like lives on within the experience of the person who was assaulted. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair. Yeah. And sometimes people in communities can't even begin to like grasp the breadth and depth of their trauma until after there is kind of a at least a subsiding of the event or experience, right? This is why I think a lot of our communities are just now beginning to contend with the trauma of the pandemic. Yeah. You experience some relative safety is when you have time to reflect or make meaning of it. Yeah, exactly. And so I actually, you know, think about trauma as this kind of blow or wounding I talk about of the mind, body, and spirit self. And here I think of that beautiful Hebrew word nefesh for all our nerdy Hebrew scholars out there. It's the whole idea of of the entire self and the entire person and one's soul and spirit, right? This idea of the, the whole of who we are. And so this idea of trauma impacting all kind of parts of who we are, right? It, it impacts our brain. It impacts our body. Um, one of the famous, you know, trauma books out there right now is, is Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, right? But mm-hmm. I also think that mm-hmm. we as people of faith and as clergy need to think about 
its impact on the mind, the body, and the spirit, right? On the this, our own conception mm-hmm. of ourself, our conception of who we are in relation to the holy. Um, and so trauma is this kind of blow or wounding that happens when, uh, you know, an experience or an event exceeds our capacity to make sense of it, right? To assimilate it or, or integrate it into what we've known before, into the stories we've told about who we are, about who God is, about who the world is. And this new traumatic event um, can't fit in. We can't find a home for it. And so it becomes trauma, which then by definition, you know, lingers. And so trauma to me is deeply disruptive. Not everything that is sad or hard is trauma. Trauma, I talk about in the book, uh, disrupts both time and coherence, right? It disrupts our sense of time and how things fall in order, as well as how our stories and lives and identities hold together. I think there is times that things are really hard and there's suffering and there's challenge. And those are important for us to think about and attend to um, from the perspective of faith, but that those things aren't necessarily trauma, right? Trauma has a foundationally uh, disorienting impact. Yeah, that's a great distinction. So the death of a loved one, of course, causes deep grief, but it may or may not be traumatic in terms of like disrupting your, your sense of what the story of life is or should be. So you use the word fracture. So you, can you talk a bit more about that? Like the narrative fracture? Absolutely. So this is a term that I I coined because I find it to be really helpful in thinking about trauma and particularly care of, of folks experiencing trauma. Um, and so narrative fracture to me is when you have this, I talked about this kind of crisis of time and crisis of coherence, right? That when they come together, there is this experience of narrative fracture. And I picked this word really carefully because I didn't want to say narrative obliteration. It's not narrative decimation, right? I want to give credit to the fact that we as individuals and as communities have a lot of mm-hmm. resiliency. But often what happens in, uh, if, if this like traumatic event or situation can't find a home right in our stories, can't find a home in the ways that we describe ourselves and our communities or even God, it begins to kind of crack away at the stories we tell. It begins to kind of break apart because those stories no longer feel helpful or meaningful, or like they can help us safely navigate the world, right? And so they don't hold together in the same way. Uh, The blessing of narrative fracture is that there are raw materials Mm. there, right, for eventual um, rebuilding and reconstruction. However, the very first thing I think um, that we need to do as people of faith for one another, that we need to do as, as community leaders, as clergy, as preachers, is to first bless that narrative fracture, right? Um, because oftentimes the ways our culture, uh, especially Western Christianity, I would argue, is implies that if we don't have it all together, that somehow that is a sign <laughs> of a lack of faithfulness, right? Yeah, yeah. To be a Christian is to like have your stuff together. <laughs> exactly. Or like... If you can't buy wholesale into like resurrection and yeah. you're still a little bit stuck in Good Friday, like then you may have some work to do before you can really show up. But you have to ignore a lot of biblical stories to think that. Oh, you're telling me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like this is what makes me kind of frustrated at times is, is we have these resources in our faith, right, to hold together, to, to name brokenness as not beyond the holy, mm-hmm. right? And as actually a part of, of 
what it means to be people in this world and to be disciples. Um, that brokenness, that this kind of traumatic reality has always been a part of our faith story and has been a part of Jesus's story, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, we have a savior who is not some um, triumphalist, right? We have a savior who goes to a cross and who lays in a tomb. Our hope is always grounded in the shadow of the cross, that we are not a people of um, erasing pain, but we are people who find God's glory um, and God's honest hope, authentic hope, genuine hope, genuine redemption um, in the shadow of the cross, right? And so our faith has space for this reality, but I think so often our inclination with narrative fracture is to encounter it and to immediately want to fix it. You talk too about like honestly naming that things have fallen apart. Yes. So that's probably part of blessing those pieces, right? Is acknowledging that things are in pieces. Absolutely. With, with some level of candor. Absolutely. And and honesty about what has been lost. Because so often I think we, we our inclination is just to name like this was the, um, this is how many people died or this is what was destroyed. But also other things are lost too, right? Like a sense of safety, or a sense of security, or trust in our community, or trust in God. And I think naming those things, especially from the pulpit to me, can be incredibly powerful because it allows people space to acknowledge those broken pieces that even we may be struggling to name. And that feels like a particular challenge for those who preach because the job is to wrap language around <laughs> meaning and experience. And so the pastor has also, if in the in an instance of communal trauma, the pastor yes. has likely also experienced that. If it's you know a mass shooting in your community or or a, another traumatic communal event, so can you talk a little bit about kind of the the pressure on a pastor, which is very real to use their words in a moment like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. Thank you for naming that. So the first thing to say is, I think preachers and pastors have to acknowledge that they're in it too, right? Um, that they are not somehow unaffected um, by this event, by this circumstance, by this, this experience. Um, and so they have to attend to their own uh, traumatic loss and grief. And there's a few ways I think it can be helpful to think about this. The first is to say that trauma does steal language which is why it's really important, I think, for us as leaders, as preachers, as pastors to think in advance hmm. about this work um, and to practice this language, right? Um, to practice what it means to honor brokenness and grief, to do this with the biblical stories, right? Um, and to practice this language for ourselves and with our community, almost in a way that that language then is held in hmm. trust for us when we need it. Um, the second thing is, 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 and I've kind of already hinted at it, is that I think we don't have to invent the language, right? We have been gifted this language in our scripture, in our liturgy, um, that that we don't need the we we don't need to feel like it is our job to somehow know exactly what to say in this moment, and that it's okay to say I don't know what to say in this moment. I recently heard a gifted preacher do a funeral for a young man who committed suicide, mm -hmm. and. Uh, she opened it by saying, my degree says I should know what to say in times like these, but 
I don't know that I have the right words. And it was just a beautiful way to open. I mean, she went on to name the brokenness, proclaim the good news. It was a beautiful sermon. But by even just acknowledging that at the start can be really powerful. And then leaning into these biblical stories, the gospel that's held in trust for us, right? The gospel that, Mm -hmm. that can carry it for us when we struggle to carry it. And then the third thing to say, I think, is understanding the role of the preacher um, or the pastor or the or the minister. And, and you know, our inclination, and, and you know this, is, is to want to jump into action and fix mm-hmm. it all. And so for me, one of the images that has been really helpful in thinking about this is what would it mean to imagine instead of ourselves as the superhero or even the meaning maker, mm-hmm. but to be like the midwife? Right, because the midwife is ushering life through pain. The midwife is fully in it with the birthing parent. Yet the midwife can't get on the table and take an hour of contractions for that birthing mm, parent. Yeah. Right? They can't do the work for them, but they can accompany with them. Right? And they can coach and they can breathe together and they can tell stories together and they can encounter struggles together. Um, And so that image of midwife has been a really helpful way for me to think about it. The other image, and I Mm -hmm. I offer it a little in the book, is that of of the prophet Habakkuk, right? And this idea of how Habakkuk genuinely stands and cries out with and for his people and his community, and yet decides in the midst of lament, in the midst of just absolute, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there is no kind of toning it down for Habakkuk. Habakkuk is is a good lamenter. Um, but he stands, he goes up and he stands on the rampart, right? On this wall that is on the edge of the community. And I, I always say from there, it's not like, that's not a point of escape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? He could probably actually see the destruction of the city better from there. Yeah. Um, it's not a place of escape, but instead it is a place of anticipation that he is going to still fully be, you know, have his feet planted in the lament of his community and yet look and see what God is yet doing and anticipating that God is still going to show up. Mm. Um, and so for me, inviting preachers and pastors who think that it is their job to have all the right words or to make meaning out of what might actually be a meaningless situation that that instead their job might be to lean into the words that we've practiced, to lean into the language gifted us, and to recognize that their role is not that of, of superhero or meaning maker, but instead of a companier, right, of midwife, of Habakkuk, of this kind of prophetic posture that doesn't disregard pain. So I talk about the snapshot form. The other form I talk about is the frayed edges form. Um, and I use um, Elie Wiesel's book, Night, mm-hmm. um, as well as thinking about the original ending of the Gospel of Mark, where the women leave mm-hmm. the tomb uh, in fear and amazement, where they said nothing to no one. Um, and think about yeah. what does it mean for our sermons to hold space for that uncertainty, um, to hold space for kind of ambiguity, um, to not end every little narrative, every little story we tell with a with a pretty bow and a, they lived happily ever after, but instead to be willing to live with frayed edges, which are actually our reality, right? Particularly mm-hmm. in the wake of trauma or in the wake of a traumatic event. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And you've, you shared a story, 
I believe this was when you were writing about Afraid Edges, about um, Reverend William Sloan yeah. Coffin, who preached 10 days after his own son's death. Yeah. Can you Absolutely. share that story? It's one I, I use this sermon a lot. It's still to me one of the most um, stunning sermons um, that I have read. So uh, Reverend uh, William Sloan Coffin, he was the pastor at Riverside Church, and uh, his son died, uh, was in a, a car accident where he was living in Boston, and uh, his car drove into the Boston Harbor, um, and he was killed oh. very young. And uh, William Sloan Coffin decided to preach 10 days, uh, preach in his home pulpit at, at Riverside 10 days after um, the death of his son. And um, it is one of the most stunning sermons. And it is a, I think, one of the best examples we have of this kind of snapshot form where he's able to really, um, he starts by kind of naming that, you know, death is not of God. Right. And then he moves into his own lament, his anger. He moves into thinking about um, natural and unnatural death. And, you know, one of my favorite parts in that sermon is when he says um, this beautiful line. He says, I know all the right biblical passages, including blessed are those who mourn. And my faith is no house of cards. These passages are true. I know it. But the point is this. While the words of the Bible are true, grief renders them unreal. And it's this just stunning line where he admits kind of the nature of trauma. And then he says that. And then in his next move, he speaks about the power of community. Right. And then Mm. he jumps back to the valley of the shadow of death. Right. And what it means to I love his line Mm of um, he, he talks about marching in the world's army of the bereaved. Right. It's just some beautiful language. And then he closes this whole thing by just reciting those biblical texts that he wants to be true again, even if he can't believe them yet. Um, And it's just this stunning sermon. Um, And I will tell you one of the greatest gifts of this project for me was I had, you know, I put lines of his sermon in this book. And so I had to get permission. And I, I had to physically mail his widow and send uh, send her. So I sent her the manuscript, the part of the manuscript that had his sermon in it. Um, and I mailed her a permissions form to sign mm-hmm. and a letter, a personal letter that just explained who I was and and what I was doing and why I wanted to use, um, you know, her, her husband's uh, sermon. And she immediately mailed me back. I was shocked. I was sure like it was going to take forever. And she, she mailed me back Uh, the permission slip, if you will, with a handwritten card that she talked about how grateful she was that his words are living on and how that sermon was a comfort to her, not just on Alex's death, um, but on his. Hmm. And so just the gift of having her affirm kind of the power of this moment and the hardness of it. Wow. That is a good word. One more thing this calls to mind when you bring up um, Reverend Coffin's uh, spouse who found comfort again in the words of this sermon when he died. Um, Trauma, because it's a subjective experience, does live on. Um, What encouragement would you give to people who are still trying to find words um, further down that's, that's perhaps not the immediate response, but does at least acknowledge the longer term impacts? Absolutely. It's always going to be there. And so acknowledging it becomes important. And one of the ways we acknowledge it is we may not talk about it every week, but that our theology 
our interpretation of biblical texts, the way we understand our faith to be at work, will always be shaped by it. I, I want to say that you don't always have to talk about it all the time, like as the event itself, but from here on out, everything you do, the way you minister, the way you think about suffering, the way you think about anger or hurt, the way you think about resurrection should be shaped by and have in mind the reality that that trauma lingers. I think actually this preaching and the tension Mm -hmm. is something we should do every Sunday, not just because we need to practice it and have it in trust for when we need it, but because we all need it at some point, right? Um, And that's part of our uh, trauma aware and trauma sensitive care um, mm-hmm. for for people as they continue through that journey, and just being tuned into the fact that yeah. these things will come up that bring the urgency of the trauma back, um, and that that isn't a sign of failure or a lack of health or progress yeah. or a lack of um, recovery or resiliency, but that that's just the case. And so we as pastors have to be and preachers have to be attuned to where our congregations are at any given time. Yeah. Well, thank you for that good word, Kim. It is, it's so great to talk with you and I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for this rich conversation. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. Our editorial and production staff include Nathaniel Hood and Byron Walker. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to leave us a review. Even better, share an episode with a friend. The Distillery is a production of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Until next time, thanks for listening.